Welcome to Creative Adversity, the podcast where we explore how entrepreneurial challenges form leaders and create business opportunities. I'm Sarah Malter, founder of Capitalize and Capitalize Technology, where we help innovative companies unlock funding. Over the last decade, I've been in the privileged position to witness the ups and downs of thousands of businesses and have been struck by the role adversity plays in creating standout leaders and life-changing business opportunities. I'm on a mission to transform the way leaders and entrepreneurs view perceived failures and instead get them to understand their true potential, that adversity can be the birthplace of innovation and creativity. Six months ago, few people outside the Ukraine knew or spoke of Vladimir Zelensky. Through the adversity of war, he has become a household name, a symbol of strength, and he has both demonstrated and inspired unprecedented creativity towards the fight for his country. It's only through immense pressure that diamonds are formed. In this podcast, we will hear stories from incredible leaders and entrepreneurs, learn how they overcame their challenges, and how to reframe adversity into opportunity. Welcome to Creative Adversity. On this episode, we're talking to two female entrepreneurs, Susie Walker and Michelle Wright, about the challenges they faced and how those challenges have shaped their business. Susie, I know there were some challenging times for you that looking back were important steps in creating Primal Pantry. Can you tell us about those? So I, I've always been in the food industry since I left uni. So I started at Nestle Roundtrees, visiting lots of BP and Shell stations and Woolworths at the time, building quality street display tins in the windows and merchandising polo mints and Kit Kats. And then went to work at Innocent Drinks, probably their toughest year. And so subsequently they had to make a third of the workforce go. So I um, opted to take the redundancy, use that to train in nutrition up in London and then went to work for Little Dish, which was a nine people, two million turnover, much smaller business. Got pregnant with our daughter. And whilst on maternity leave, I realized that I didn't really need to go back to work at Little Dish and instead focused on building a nutrition practice. And I was working with clients and where they struggled was on the go snacks. And so in the summer of 2013, I got the blender out, made some energy balls, gave them to some clients to try. They loved them. And that was it. I thought, right, I need to get back in the industry. Found a manufacturer in the Northeast, um, who we still work with today. Gave them some recipes and said, I want to make these paleo, gluten-free, grain-free energy bars. And we were Primal Kitchen at the time. Um, And then in December, we bought the packaging, signed off the recipes. And then February 2014, built a cheap sort of Squarespace website, stuck them on a website, started selling them on Facebook. We did 20,000 bars in the first two weeks. And then it was a, a, a roller coaster of a journey. So um, the first year was pretty straightforward, working on it part-time. We sold it into Superdrug, Cardo, um, the Nutri-Center, which was a, the nutrition arm of Tesco's. We did a quick round of funding. We took 150 grand funding, built a team. We launched into Sainsbury's and Waitrose in 2015. 2016, we finally got our chance to launch into Tesco's. Um, built the team to, I think the biggest we got to was about 26 employees. And then 2017, the market got quite busy. Sales sort of plateaued. But it's a tough one because you can raise so much money and you can be in such a competitive space, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to grow that quickly off the back of having the investment. And so 2018, 2019 was quite tough. And so the decision came that we needed to find a new home for Primal Pantry. 
And January, February was really sort of pulling a deck together, pulling the story together, speaking to various sort of suitors that could take the brand on. And then we had six interested parties that would take it on. And this was early March. And then, you know, the offers were due in, I think it was the 20th of March, 23rd of March, we all went to, you know, our first massive lockdown. The whole industry just ground to a halt. All investments ground to a halt. Fortunately, we had built a decent Amazon business and an online business. And as a result, we had a few good meetings and Nurture Brands was the best suitor for us. And it's just a nice family to be part of because it sits alongside Rebel Kitchen, Emily Snacks and Abe Snacks. So as of today, Primal Pantry sits under the Nurture Brands umbrella. It was only a matter of time that I wanted to start something else again. So we merged with Nurture on the 1st of April. And by July the 1st, we'd registered Keto Collective and Keto Limited as a, as a business. Do you have ways of dealing with setbacks from a personal perspective? The primal days was interesting because there were days I didn't enjoy as things got tough. And having the team made a massive difference because you thought, right, I've got to get up, got to go. You think, I've got to get into the office. Could never get in before anyone else because I was always dropping my daughter off at school. But, you know, when things get tough or the shit hits the fan, you've still got to put the brave face on. And then on the keto side, it's because I'm dealing with consumers. So if we get a text message come through or a Facebook notification or an email, for me, it's kind of the service element. You know, can we, can we provide a better service? So that motivates me as well. Put it this way, it's not about money because you spend, you know, if it was about money, you wouldn't be doing this. What about financing the business? That can always be a challenge. How did you do it? So with Primal, we started with a um, good old-fashioned credit card. And then we managed a year just sort of funding it ourselves. Well, basically putting money in. I borrowed 10 grand off my parents just to help with the first production run. Because we knew that we could sell it, essentially. So we knew the money was safe. And then we did a year and then we raised 150 grand uh, SCIS investment with an investor. D- different types of finance, whether it was tied to our stock, whether it was tied to our trade book. And then... The loan was riskier, obviously, but again, we thought we're going to Tesco's, we'll, we can pay it back over a period of time. There was lots of flexibility. Mm-hmm. You always kind of think what's the worst that could happen, essentially. And then we took out the next round of EIS funding, the three quarters of a million, and then we took the venture capital funding. Yeah, you put your own cash in to begin with. That's a risk you take. You know, if you put money on anything, it's as soon as you put it there, it's gone. I always kind of say, like I said, I always say, what's the worst that could happen? We have no business. That's the worst that could happen, mm-hmm. ultimately. And you just start again. Thank you, Susie. Next up, Michelle Wright, the founder of Cause4, who work in conjunction with the charity sector. Michelle is a CEO whose early failures have shaped her later successes. Michelle, talk us through your journey to becoming a successful founder. Gosh, well, it's been a bit of a circuitous route, really. So I started as a violinist um, and I had a reasonably successful freelance career in London orchestras. Uh, but I was very aware that I'd probably be doing the same thing in 20 years' time if I wasn't careful. And I had, you know, I was more ambitious than that, really, to try other things and to have exposure to new experiences. So I then went to work in the charity sector, worked my way up slowly through marketing and fell into fundraising, which is what I do now for the charity and social enterprise sector. Just in the last recession, so 2009 time, we set up Cause 4, I was working in a charity in the city of London at that time and saw the Lehman Brothers uh, bank collapse, you know, seeing that all those staff sort of carrying their boxes out of the building. And I just thought, you know, the world has changed. 
the world of charities and social enterprises is also going to need to, to change and adapt. So that's uh, where the idea for Course War came from, um, to set up a small business that could hopefully have high impact in supporting charities to raise uh, money better. Now, I firmly believe that successes are built on learnings from things that have gone wrong, and that actually failure is essential to success, as long as you can learn from it. Are there any standout lessons that brought you to where you are today? <laughs> so many failures, way too many to mention. So we're about 13, coming up to 13 years in business. At the start, we were quite successful, really. We won lots of awards, we won accolades because we were there was lots of demand for what we were doing. And so I think the first mistake that I made <laughs> was getting onto that kind of awards reach, really, because it meant that our profile was way ahead of our infrastructure and our ability to deliver, actually. So my biggest regret in those early years was that we took on, frankly, a bit too much work. Some of the quality suffered. We weren't able to embed a culture in the team that I was really, really comfortable with. And it was only <laughs> when I had my first son, and he's almost six now, when I had um, a few months outside of the business, I was still sort of working, but I just had time to stop for a moment, reflect a bit. And I was so conscious that all the things that we were being seen <laughs> externally as very successful on, you know, turnover, growth, the number of people that we employed, none of those things were actually important to me. You know, they weren't the driver behind why I'd started the business. The things that were really important to me were our values, the culture, quality of work. And so we gradually stripped back. We became a smaller team consciously. We focused relentlessly on the quality of work um, and the culture of the team. And it's taken five or six years, but I think it's really paying off now. And in fact, we just um, managed to upgrade our investors in people status. And the person taking us through the accreditation just said, there's a real confidence now, <laughs> you know, there's a very stable team. And I, I, I felt very happy about that because actually that's what I feel but it's taken a long time to achieve. What business challenges do you worry about in the future? Well gosh I'm scared I mean not with our own business but you know I I have plenty of anxiety for the sectors I work in at the moment which are mostly arts culture heritage and mainstream charity. Chief executives I support sometimes you think my goodness they're needing to navigate a pandemic there's a funding crisis you know because funding is getting more and more competitive we've got all these global uh, areas happening that are outside of our control like brexit etc and then other areas that are so important (laughs) to how we live and how we're going to live in the future you know from black lives matter to the environment for example and I think just those competing forces for some of the leaders of our organisations can feel overwhelming. So that's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, how do we navigate this? How do we create acceptable sort of working conditions for people that they can, they can flourish? Um, I think the other area which is more personal to me is, you know, if I'm being honest, <laughs> I, I didn't expect to be running course for 13 years on. And it's a wonderful surprise that we're in touch with uh, thriving and surviving through all sorts of different circumstances. I know from other founders that you need to be thinking about what's next. 
long before you're ready for what's next. <laughs> so, um, you know, I hope I'll be in and around course four for the next 10 or 15 years. But, you know, thinking about the right thing to do and at the right time, I think is, is complex. And in fact, most of the female founders that I know have struggled with exit and found that very difficult. So that's something that's sort of on my mind. Do you think it's harder for women to exit a business than a man? I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure. Actually, I think, as I say, most of the founders that I know have really struggled with that exit moment for lots of different reasons and on lots of different levels. One, to leave behind something that's been so much part of their life is really hard. And I also work at the other end with on philanthropy with um, founders that have exited and then find themselves with so much time on their hands and some unexpected wealth. And not sure what to do. And that is a kind of heartbreaking scenario, really. But I think in general, if you want to sell, then I don't think that there's a lot of clearly identified pathways in how to go about that. And I think often people find it a very bruising process. I've got one very good friend who was you know, part of my female entrepreneurs group that has supported me through thick and thin. And they sold quite well <laughs> in the end, although it was quite a bruising process. But She's sort of still thinking, I don't think that was good enough. You know, I still feel like I'm a bit of a failure. And you're just like, oh, my goodness. So I think there's also those kind of imposter type things that, that come into play, particularly for women. Funnily enough, I'm just about to change my computer. And so I've been doing a good file tidy up, which is long overdue. And it's been fascinating looking back to kind of client relationships 10 years ago, say, and, and now. The moments where I've felt most stressed have been at odds with values or they've been where the quality has suffered or we've done something that just wasn't quite right Mm. and I think hopefully mostly that's kind of been eliminated now one by not overstretching (laughs) two by not taking on work that we um, are interested in but perhaps we don't have the right skill set for if, if I'm being honest and three that we now have a kind of set of criteria for where our model will best support an organization you know so i there needs to be a few things in place on the charity side to make sure that our model is a really good value for money for them thanks very much to michelle hope you've enjoyed the podcast if so please subscribe below for more inspirational stories and lessons in creative adversity remember the difference between setback and opportunity is only a matter of perception